0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's feature is Tina D'Elia. D'Elia is a mixed race, Mexican, lesbian, queer identified feminist artist, performance coach, acting instructor, SAG Afro actor and award winning solo performer. Good morning, Tina.
1: Good morning to you, Kat. Honored to be here with you.
0: Really excited to have this conversation with you. Quick fun fact for my listeners, Tina D'Elia was the first acting coach that I sought out and uh, worked with after I moved to the Bay Area. So we go back quite a ways. Um, and we are currently both program directors. We're going to talk about your program in a minute, Tina, at Three Girls Theater. But first, Tina, I want to start a bit uh, about you and specifically where and how you grew up and what your family was like.
1: Yeah, thanks, Kat. Um... And I just want to say, I love being here with you in this space. I love the work that you do. I, um, I grew up in a mixed race home that was also influenced um, biculturally as well through uh, my mom's ancestry being Mexican and German. And because my Mexican grandmother, my German grandfather, uh, were not finding housing um, my grandmother's from New Mexico. When my grandfather um, returned from the Second World War, he was from uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And as a mixed race couple, they weren't able to get a house a home sold to sold to them. Uh, part of his dream was to live in South America, and they moved to Colombia and tried to find a place that felt like uh, where they wanted to live. And so my uh, so they and they found Cali, Colombia, as their home. And so my mom grew up in Cali, Colombia. My grand, my uncles were born in Cali, Colombia. My mom um, was born in New Mexico. So what's interesting on my mother's side is uh, when I tell folks I'm mixed race Mexican, but they know my heritage or they see how my family is, with whether it's like playing music and drums from Cali or the, uh, my uncles having very strong accents or this other um, bicultural um heritage that my uh, upbringing, culture that my mother brought, people always go, yeah, and then this is Tina, and she's Colombian and mixed. She's also Italian on her father's side. So, and I always laugh because I think, you know, this is probably the story of so many of us um, that are mixed is that um, uh, that we have to go back, you know, and sort of trace our roots as far as, um, like, how did my family come to live in Kali? And I'm like, well, there was racism. Um <laughs> Um, so they were doing. They were doing just. They were doing just fine. Um, they were doing fine as a couple in Cali, Colombia. Um, and then my father is Southern Italian, and he grew up in New Jersey. And my parents met uh, when they both were in school in St. Louis, Missouri. And I'm uh, I have an older brother and a younger sister, so I'm the middle kid. And we pr- pretty much grew up in Massachusetts. We uh, lived in a small town, and then. Out of college. I grew up I was living in Jamaica Plain, which is a part of um the city of Boston before I moved out to the Bay Area in 98, 99. But um, but yeah, I feel like uh, as far as family, they're all over. I mean, there's still family in um the St. Louis area, but less and there's definitely family in New Mexico. Um, but family all over. So that's that's a bit about uh me and my background as far as familia. Yeah.
0: So keeping on the familiar tip a little bit, uh, you mentioned you were the middle child. Now, I'm an only child, so I don't understand any of the <laughs> siblings' business. But I've heard <laughs> that the middle child is often trying to get the attention, right? The, the, there's the first child, and then there's the younger child, and then there's the middle kid that's sort of stuck in between. Is that how, why you found acting? Oh my God,
1: what a great question. Um, I think it was part of it. Because um because it was I feel like because my mother and my uncles grew up in Cali and um my mother was dancing flamenco, they were all sort of singing and dressing up, and my uncles were also doing puppet shows, and one of my uncle Jorge, who's um does voiceover and did a lot of puppeteering back in the day, because arts and performance was about what they just did and brought it into the family, both my older brother and I were really drawn to it. So I think in a way, my brother was doing one thing and do, uh, it, as a kid and getting, getting attention, doing it well, especially I feel like he was a real trickster and was very funny, so that was going. So I feel like I needed to also do my own thing and figure out what that was. And um, I distinctly remember that when my sister was being baptized, because uh, we were raised Catholic, and it was in a rectory that um, to, I'm thinking like, oh my God, this stuff bores me so much. So my brother, I remember when I, my brother was completely telling jokes and entertaining the priest at one point, but I was, I snuck away. I knew that, you know, girls were not allowed to sneak into a church, go up the steps to an altar and entertain and that was completely my intention. I was going to baptize myself um, and no one was going to catch me. I knew I was not allowed to be doing anything I was doing and I was going to do it. And I did it. And <laughs> being 5'2", so I was really small. As a, I was really small. I saw that microphone really high and I thought the spirit hit me and I was like, I have something I need to say and tell it. And so I think I was doing a lot of silent... Uh, preaching and vocalizing and, you know, sort of like I I was this young revolutionary. And then I transitioned to like, and now I need to dance and entertain. Um, And I still knew it was like, you have a few seconds, girl, you better do this and get away with it. And I saw my pretend audience out there. I danced for them. I did my thing. I tiptoed back down, walked into the rectory. Nobody noticed I was gone which might say something as a middle child, but I knew what I was doing. I got, I knew what I did. I got away with it, which was great. And there was my brother like cracking jokes and entertaining the priest. Um, And and I'm thinking, you know, like, and who knows, probably people were, you know, hawing and caffawing over the the baby. But um, yes, I feel like I was very used to sort of either, either I've got to go off and do my, figure out how to direct this, my own show by myself or sort of be, a, also realize I'm either going to be, you know, if my brother is the lead, then I'm going to be the supporting. Otherwise, we're going to try to be co-stars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is the best how I started acting story, I think, that I've ever heard. Um uh, let's talk about some of your your current work, uh, Tina, uh, um, and and the intersectionality of, uh, or the intersection, excuse me, of of how you identify and the work that you do. And specifically, I'd love for you to talk about Les Rights, uh, the the program you direct at Three Girls Theater.
1: Yes, I I feel incredibly honored, blessed, thrilled, excited, and uh, and so grateful that. Um, All of the ways that I met Three Girls Theatre before I started working for Three Girls Theatre as the program director for Les Rights BTQ was already that I was doing the work as a queer mixed-race Latina artist, um, the solo performance work, the research that I do, trying to infuse bringing in Latinx ancestry as far as whether it was queer stars like Ramon Navarro or Dolores Del Rio, who's, Ramon is gay and Dolores is bisexual. So, and then my characters that I create are, are queer, present day and queer. So I was doing that kind of work when I would perform with Les Wrights, which was started by Marjorie Kreitman. And, there were, and I love that there was this space that performances were happening that was bringing all kinds of queer women together and queer AFAB folks together. And when I sort of went into interview and learn about Les rights, I thought um, more intimately um, at three GT. I thought, you know, I feel like now is the time to sort of expand Les Wrights to Les Wrights BTQ, not to be confused with Les Wrights barbecue, but um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if I say it too fast, get people get confused. Um, but that now is a time to really show the intersectionalities of gender and. Uh, trans masculine, trans women, non binary folks, um, AFAB folks in our, and bisexual folks in our queer spectrum, and really bring in playwrights, more playwrights, more solo performers, as well as more dramaturgs and directors and actors who are on the queer spectrums. Um, and I, I feel like because I was already doing sort of diversity casting work and Um, I've done recruitment of queer and trans folks before in my life and in other areas that so much of what I love to do as far as is um, outreaching, uplifting people, putting our communities, our BIPOC queer trans communities at the center, hearing those stories and voices and knowing that for many folks um, to start a story, whatever that looks like in whatever playwriting or solo performance format And go forward with it, and have that support is not possible unless you have resources. And for me, it um, being able to have support with the—I think I'm on my maybe my fifth solo show now—that that that I really believe in the process, and that it takes a village, and that you you get—you know—you find your team, you find your people, you find who's going to nurture your work and really help you expand, and so. To be able to run the the program of Les Rights BTQ and um, have folks start from wherever they are from their from their play or solo show and get the support of a dramaturg, get the support of a director, get the support of actors and a stage reading, and not have to pay for it, but instead have that be part of the program that they get to be a part of and get to have the resources of people coming and. As some folks may not know, like all of 3GT's three girls theater stage readings are for free, so they're accessible to folks. So I love what I do and I love all the folks I get to meet. And some of them I've already known and some of them I haven't, but I feel like this is part of the work that I'm supposed to be doing, which is really helping support folks um, seeing their dreams come true as far as telling their stories. And if you are a, a,
0: a woman-identified woman writer over the age of 40s, you too should check out Three Girls Theater because that is the home uh, for for writers that that don't um, don't get the love of mainstream Hollywood uh, very often or mainstream New York for talking theater very often. Um, And you not only do theater, you also do film and television, uh, Tina. Um, And I I dance in and out of it mostly because it makes me want to stop acting usually because of the the business side. And when I do though, look at casting roles now, I don't see as many roles that say, uh, you know, 45-year-old latina or 35-year-old black woman i see looking for a racially ambiguous act you know man woman whatever dog um not not tied to an actual race talk about i don't know if you have that same frustration but i definitely feel it's a continuation of the erasure mm-hmm. of of folks of color our culture our contribution to 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 this planet and how, how that's impacting the ability of actors of color to actually get work. Actors that clearly are Black or clearly are Latina, yes. um,
1: that are not ambiguous at all in how they walk in yes. the world. Yes. So glad you asked me that, Kat. I feel like for decades and decades and decades, you know, still happening, still going on that I'm fighting against, and and I always want to talk about with folks in casting, is that casting was created around a white supremacist model a very like uh, it became a very mainstreamed and very patriarchal, incredibly ageist and misogynist um, uh, with women. No and, and no sense of and like a no sense of reality as far as, I okay maybe this person is thirty and I'm like they're fifty seven. Let's stop <laughs> like, <laughs> um and and, uh, and yes and creating just complete false notions. Like, so then folks in their forties feel like they need to say they're in their thirties. And so I, uh, I'm 53 when I turned 40, I, I was like, Oh, all those women before me on uh, all those women. Now there, they, they were, of course they were all telling the truth. I I feared this. I was like, I'm 53. But when I turned 40 immediately, the calls, the, the, the auditions, everything was less. It, I, I, I was, I was like, if I feel some invisibility, that means folks who are really being marginalized and pushed out are must be feeling like this a thousandfold. And yes, the terminologies were still um, were very much around like the ethnic ambiguity, um, uh, and then s- sort of ethnic ambiguity, sort of maybe it once in a while went into sort of mixed something, maybe, or just a a run through of kind of a lot of ethnicities, but really, I wasn't, but very unclear. I'm like, is this the one role then that is like one role that could be seven different nationalities and ethnicities? And I'm like, okay, so this is not a priority. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is not a priority. And and when, I, and when I sort of argue or make statements about these false notions, um, like recently in talking to some folks in LA that were getting pushback on, trans folks working on series about trans folks and going, you know what, like we're, we're pushing, pushing up against people. It was like, they don't care. And I'm just, you know, yelling and screaming and I'm like, I'm like, really? So then if I get in a room with these people, they still don't care? So What I felt so strongly that I could do as a casting director is say, I'm going to break all of those rules and then I'm going to keep breaking rules because I have no idea when I would look at a breakdown of characters and I'd go, I'm not sure what the choices would be that these characters are all young and I'm not sure why all of them couldn't be BIPOC characters. Every time I see all the majority of white uh, lead actors, white protagonists, um, and also again and again, this goes back to, right, who's telling the stories, who's directing the stories, um, and who can even get into the room to do that. Um, and then the incredible, um, tokenizing of going, "Cat, you have one thing, you have one thing. <laughs> I was like, I was like, that's a, right. That doesn't count. That's a problem. Like, right. That's a problem too. That doesn't. That's not helping. And I feel so strongly that when, when, and I'm pointing to myself, when there is a place when one has some kind of leadership privilege to be able to be in the room or make recommendations and fight for um, actors and fight for a vision that absolutely needs to look different than this whole mainstreaming white supremacist patriarchal vision of casting, that, that for me it means... Like, I'm one person, and so this world is only going to get stronger if I'm bringing more and more people on board to be doing this with me. Kat, you don't have to go to school to be a casting director. Yay, that's great. (laughs) That's great. That means that, you know, that this is just about, you know, like many artistic practices, that it's your experience and your dedication and your time um, involved in the work, and I also and I also give enormous props to my mentor Nina Henninger because she really she really wanted to know who I am and and uh, what I was bringing in and and um, and how I could keep growing, how much I could keep growing, and so I I many many times envision myself as being like, now you need to bring on all of these people to help you cast in this person, so. Yes, I have. Gosh, I have so many feelings, Kat, about, I mean, so many feelings. Just like I get so angry when, if I learn on the inside, like, you know, fighting for someone who is an actor in a wheelchair, disabled, and here's the role, and people have the means to do recruitment all over the country. And then I'm on the floor crying and screaming because I'm like, And then we cast the able-bodied person, like it just all got swept to the side. And they're like, we're going to cast our friend over here. And I'm like, what are, I was like, I'm like, like I'm, I'm speechless and I won't, you know, and I'm speechless and I won't stop sharing those stories. I'm speechless, you know? So there's experiences where, uh, yes, the ethnic ambiguity keeps happening and I just keep going Nope, we're just going to, we're going to change that. Or somebody gives me a breakdown that's really, you know, thin, like, you know, right, right. Like, um, like black woman, uh, mother, sad,
0: crying, <laughs> <laughs> lives. Listen, you get that. You call me, I will come pout in
1: your exactly. office. <laughs> and then I'm go- And then I'm going, well, the job is to read the script. And then I'm like, yeah, there's a lot more going on here. It's like, I'm not asking permission. That's the other thing. I was just like, I'm not asking people permission. Um, and that happens too when there's, when there's roles where it's like female, male, that's a really large spectrum. I'm not asking you permission to bring in folks of gender spectrums. And right, and you're just, you're looking for somebody to, you know, be a, a leader. Well, there's all, I was like, yeah, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of leadership. So I'm just going to show you folks who I think will be phenomenal. Kat, I want to change the mainstreaming of all of that, of film, of television, of web series, of, of yeah, I wanna, I wanna help change the landscape because it's, it's not okay.
0: So grateful for the work you do. I mean, you know, I was joking about, you know, well, no, I wasn't joking when I talked about, you know, d- dipping in and out of even pursuing television and film because it just eats at my artist's mm-hmm. soul um, to, to engage in it. And I'm just, I, you know, I'll just go do theater and then, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and be fed, Tina. Taking the conversation back to yeah. theater, and we only have a few minutes sure. left. But you you sort of glossed over uh, five solo shows, and then you kept talking as if right, like you just sort of sit down and write what you wrote one a day. As someone who has written a full length solo show, I happen to know that it is a labor of love and so many other yes. things. Um, talk about where the ideas for your solo shows have come from. And you, you, you help other people yeah. write solo shows and talk about, a, a, talk a bit about process and, and how it differs actually from writing, you know, a, a play with multiple characters.
1: Yes. Um, I came to solo work through spoken word um, performance poetry in the, in the nineties in Boston. And what was so great was it was, I feel like there were all kinds of writers and performers I was seeing um, folks of color, and and I always tell people the story. I was at Theater Offensive, which is a really great radical queer theater in Boston. Pamela Sneed, a black queer woman from performer, incredible performer from New York, came down to perform. Um, uh, Imagine being more afraid of freedom than slavery, and she was right up like next to us at our feet, and then we get to go, and then the next day like do a free workshop with Pamela Snead. and so and there were many artists that were brought in, but. Like I'll never forget that moment in 1993 because I was the seeds were already being planted and and then I was and then I was learning sort of how to I was like, "Oh, okay, so right, you you take a workshop, you spend time with folks, um you figure out sort of your theater, your people, what you want to write about." So I'd always been char- I've always been character driven in uh, in storytelling and I usually will always find fictionalized characters that I can play and play multiple of them is is my style. And my first show is more serious because I, um, since high school, I was very committed to doing anti-sexual violence work. And so my show, Forgotten Angel, was, um, I infused some of my um, spoken word poetry into that, and uh, was trying to tell a, a story that was of a much more serious tone. And I already had a mentor, Lois Roach in Boston, who's a Black uh, poet, uh, director, writer, and performer who was all... Lois is all about, like, we're going to use the simplicity of you have a chair and you have your water and that's it. And I'm like, okay, great. We're stripping this down. It's all... it's, It's the body. It's the energy. It's the environment. So I was working with one theater company developing that show and I started to take a class in Boston. My next show, um, because it was so much more involved, like really multi-characters and I was trying to nail the performance of Groucho Marx um, and using a lot of screwball comedy that I really had to dedicate more time to not only more researching of the Marx Brothers, although that was something I grew up loving Groucho and uh, his style and his wordplay, but um, in the anti-establishment sense of the Marx Brothers. But um, I knew how much I needed to take ongoing classes, work with the same director, dramaturg. And then when I moved from Boston to San Francisco between 98 and 99, I I, I was like, okay, I need to do something of a similar nature. And what was amazing was I was finding more solo performers, which I knew they they were here, and then there was a place called Z Studios for just a few years around 2000 2001 so that helped as far as a place to go do your work take a class here and there uh it was how i met ellen sebastian chang eventually she directed me in in a, in, in my uh one of my iterations of the groucho show i did cat i was developing that show for years and trying different things with it and so uh, I find how important it is because it's a format that you have to be on your feet and embodying yeah. that, that now since 2011 to, to present, to the future, I'm in classes with David Ford at the Marsh. Basically my sweet spot when I talk to solo performers is writing happens in the moment. So if I'm improv you know, turn audio on. If I'm improv even whether I'm now, now because of the pandemic, whether I'm on Zoom or I'm live in a theater, I will be writing my script or writing a new scene or writing a really strong backstory simply by being in class, you know, or being in coaching, but a lot of times being in class and I might do one piece and then I've just built out a whole other piece. And then I get notes and then I know I'm going back in the next week. And, you know, there are times where I walk into class and I'm like, I haven't done anything. Mm. But I know, Mm -hmm. but I know, but what I know is I go, okay, so, but here's what my character needs to be, like, here's where we're going, or here's where we left off, or here's, here's the conflict. So this is where I'm going to start from. And then maybe I'm asked some questions of the teacher or the coach or David Ford or Mary Guzman, my director, like, here's, here's where I'm stuck, or here's where I'm at, or here's, here's something that doesn't quite work. And that's how the work gets done. I find it, as a performer and writer, fascinating and phenomenal. And I am so fortunate to be taking classes so long with David Ford. He's completely magical. And before I met David, I was already working with Mary Guzman, my director for my solo work. And I've worked with other solo directors in the Bay Area as well who are fantastic. I think what it was was just, again, finding that, like, finding that meeting of what our styles are like, uh what our rhythms are like. And Mary also had that, like, you are going to, you know, embody, we're not, like, I never have, a, I really never have almost any props. Like, everything is created. And since Mary understood that and knows that so well, she can see, you know, if I put an imaginary cup on an imaginary table, she could tell me, like, the table just moved an an inch. (laughs) And then I'll be like, darn it, Mary. (laughs) Like, you know, like, she was like, that, you just slightly missed the other character's cheek. Uh, And then, right, having similar kinds of humor and also Mary just being this fierce, queer Latina director who, if she brings up a suggestion or, you know, a sensibility, music that we're using, if I say something to her, I can almost guarantee that she's going to start laughing. So, I think that, from my experience, I feel like either in the work that we do because it's so intimate in solo performance, either it's a very strong, you know, sort of colleague, you know, type friendship, or it's a really strong, strong friendship, mm-hmm. um, depending on how you know intimate um, and vulnerable uh, the work is, and and to be held, I. I don't ever want a solo performer to sort of think like my show got to this point and now like the director, everybody's leaving me and you just, the the solo performer shows up and has to sort of run everything, like talk to the tech and talk to this person and talk to that person. And I'm like, it is so helpful to me because a cast usually has a director that a solo performer get used to figuring out who's my key person, people in the room that can, that can, that can support that process so that sometimes a director might be, maybe you've had this experience, Kat, where you're like, oh, thank goodness, this director is a little bit of a buffer, like let Kat go back and warm up, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? And not engage right now. So if you're wearing too many hats as a solo performer, I find, um, right, you could just exhaust yourself out. So I'm always like, when I'm coaching, I'm always like, who's that person, you know, that you're going to, that you can go back, do your thing, and you don't have to sort of you know, show up as producer at the top of the show. But um, yes, so process and getting support in the creative process. And to be honest, sometimes the show, to me, my, for me, my show, like Overlook Latinas, I really enjoyed my show when it came out in 2019 at Brava. And then just at the Marsh, because there were different twerks and tweaks that happened in you know, 2022. And I'm like, oh my God, the show is better. Like I found even more what I was trying to say, and which I, I just I can't underscore enough. Like the magic of theater, right? It's not like it's not like being like you know that film we shot five years ago. I'd really like to go back and tweak it. Like that's a little harder to do. It's a little more. That's a little more difficult. Versus, yes, the evolution of how work can change, work can tighten, work can get even stronger, or like the characters can go even deeper. Tina Mm D'Elia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Kat Brooks. I love being here with you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive.